you like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of a hawk. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green, Dan Ferlito. Welcome to the show, everyone. And we are here again to talk about the comics that are being published through Titan Media, issues 9 through 12 of the 2019 series, and uh, what everyone thought about them. So I guess we'll start. What do you think about it, Patrick? Uh, I don't know why I'm laughing. I just feel I feel like this is such a funny I, I don't, like stop and start. No, I, I think they're great. I, I, I'm so glad we've got this. I, I have to say there's a number of uh, interesting things that happened in this final arc that um, some of them caught me off guard. Some of them felt kind of like a homecoming. I think it's not a uh, an accident that the collected edition, which came out, I believe, in February, is uh, Home Again, Home Again is the title of it, which giggity gig is, of course, a uh, phrase beloved. Jerky. that's right giggity 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 is from family guy right yeah is the collected one through 12 or is it because i have volume it's not it's this is nine nine through 12 okay well because i have uh one through eight on volume one and then i was assuming a volume two would come out but that's only four more so i don't know how the hell i don't know what they're gonna do sure so i have i have the three of them right here uh and for me i have one through four right oh yeah i'm sorry you're right they're doing it in five okay, through eight one yeah through four. and then nine through twelve. Oh, oh, so five through eight did come out volume two came out uh yeah like six months ago <laughs> Damn, you're supposed to update me on this shit Patrick. you're the comics <laughs> dude you know i ain't paying attention <laughs> this shit's been out for a long time the third one came out in like, february hey guys here's the collected one here's a link <laughs> <laughs> just, I can't count on Patrick get for it. literally anything. <laughs> <laughs> just give me your Amazon account. You know, I'll, I'll log into it. And I'll get you what you need. Or your local comic store. Once again, support your local comic store. Um, no, I feel like uh, I I bought mine at my local comic store. I just need to go back and do volume two. And, good, good, and good. three and three is out or not out? Three has been out for a month, a little over a month. Okay, cool. So yeah. I can finish. I can finish my collection of 2019. Great. You should. And and again, the the collected editions for those who don't have them yet come with a lot of really cool bonus content, including uh, you know, some script, some like script to to page things showing some of uh Green and Johnson's original writing and then the way that Guinaldo translated it. Um, something about this final arc that I want to point out that Dan actually had noticed earlier is that uh starting with issue nine, I believe, 
the writing credit goes exclusively to Mike Johnson, and Michael Green becomes creative consultant. Um, of course, the you know these two guys work together on on Supergirl and on other titles. Um, they've been collaborating for a long time, and uh, for the first eight issues of this Blade Runner ongoing series, they were um, co-writing it. And now it seems like there's kind of a shift. So I, what I think we're seeing is something a little bit closer to the flavor of what these comics will probably be like in the long run, um, because they are going to be in the long run. We have two more series ongoing as we record this. One of them had a third issue that just dropped on my birthday last week, which was pretty exciting. Um, there's a lot going on in, in Blade Runner comic fandom, but, uh, so yeah, high level thoughts. I really enjoyed it and I'm excited to unpack some of it with you both tonight. And, uh, Dan, what do you think of it? Um, yeah, I was trying, I, I didn't go back and read one through eight. So I was just kind of trying to remember what my experience was with that. But my, my bigger picture overall feeling was, I don't want to say graded on a curve. That's what I always say about star Wars is like, you know, we talked about it during the Mandalorian where I'm like, well, you know, I don't really put star Wars in the same place as I would any other cinema. I kind of grade it within the star Wars world to how good it is. And so similarly with these Blade Runner comics, I was like, okay, new Blade Runner franchise, you know, canonical element with lots of room for error that happens in between storylines. And some people are never going to read them. Some people are going to read them and ignore them because they're like, nope, I don't like what they did. I'm just sticking to the, the first film or both films or whatever. And, um, one through eight, I was really happy with what they did. Um, I was, I had some apprehension. We talked about it, about them depicting off world. I was like, Ooh, that's a risky move. And I thought they handled that really well. I think they showed you just a little bit. It, it was almost like seeing a few matte paintings of off world of something that they like didn't use for the first film or something like that. And I think the fact that in the collected editions, you also get to see these just breathtaking Sid Mead covers every time I see those, uh, especially in these last, in this last third, um, this, or this third act, if you want to call it that the Sid Mead covers, like there's one with a close up of someone in a spinner. And I was just like, how have I never seen this before? I'm on 17,000 nerdy Blade Runner groups of art and all this stuff. And I have a Sid Mead, but, and I've never seen this stuff. Like I love how, they were able to keep some of the stuff exclusive or at least exclusive to most people. I'm certainly not the nerdiest nerd about Blade Runner out there, but you know, I see a lot of stuff and for me to be surprised by something that was drawn probably back in the early eighties from Sid Mead is just mind blowing. So I love that aspect. Um, and yeah, I think that every time they made a decision uh, about dipping their toes into previous characters or canonical elements, they always just handled it with, in my opinion, subtlety and grace. Um, when they reference, you know, a part of LA that we've seen in the film, or for example, the top of the LAPD building or whatever, or in this act, the dilapidated Tyrell pyramid, it just like, it never felt gratuitous or fan service to me. It always felt like it was just part of the world building that made sense because had they not included it, you'd be like, well, what the hell happened to LAPD only a few months after the first film or then the same year or the next year or whatever, or what happened to the Tyrell pyramid. So I'm really glad that they showed that. Um, and that all made sense. So I really love the way they handled the depictions and all the art. Um, I love the writing. The writing is just 
really great. So the writing, Patrick will have to help me on this because I'm not that familiar with comic books. Um, but it was unclear at times how much it was like film noir style dialogue versus just comic book dialogue. But either way, I really loved a lot of the dialogue interactions. So I thought the writing was great. I didn't really have moments that pulled me out where I was like, oh, this sounds like bullshit or this sounds unrealistic. The characters feel real. They feel fleshed out. Um, and yeah, both things that take us into, I'll say the future, quote unquote, because obviously 2049 in this world is the furthest that we've gone into the future. And this only covers 2019 through 2027. But what I mean is the future compared to the first film and kind of in those in-between places past the blackout. I really love what they did uh, when they show you Santa Barbara and talk about Ventura. It just seemed like the perfect blend of real world things along with mentions of Calanthea in the comic books. Yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? I wrote it all down. I'm just like, this is so cool. And I really want to interview these writers and David Leach again, or, or at least I want to be on that episode because I have questions like, why did you choose to spell Calantha differently and call it Calanthea? Because there's, that's not something they missed. They obviously made that a deliberate choice. I have lots of little things I wrote down like that where I want to ask them why they made that creative decision, but I can't think of anything that I disagreed with. So that's my overall picture. I have detailed notes on each um, episode, but I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Jamie? I Like you guys, I enjoyed it. I thought it was... The characters were great. The story was, it's its fascinating, it's interesting, it's engrossing. Things become more complex as you go along, which I think is uh, important to the Blade Runner universe. Yeah, I, I don't, I think it was all really working as it was in, as intended, uh, to be honest. Uh, everything from the visuals to the to the, the writing slash dialogue, I thought it was, it was great. And it's not, if I can use this term, it's not allowed comic like there's not tons of dialogue wall to wall it's echoes a little bit the aesthetic of the film where it's just quiet where there's a couple of pages of just imagery and you're seeing um cityscapes or moments in the spinner or whatever and so i i thought that was a nice touch it was nice for them to echo the the rhythm of the films on the whole I think it works and it's, it's engrossing and it's a success. Yeah. And I, I, I have seen a, a few reviews that have mentioned exactly what you're talking about, Jamie, which is something that I really appreciated about it as well, which is that it feels, especially within the realm of comic books, very quiet. Um, a lot of the time there's a bombastic nature to comics, especially sort of quote unquote action comics like this, you know, where there's gunplay and fight scenes and things, the fight scenes and the gunplay are in this and they're really cool, but a lot of it is just sort of, you know, walking and traversing in a spinner and and quiet moments with eye contact those great splash pages we talked about um yeah i totally agree with that i want to go back also to uh something dan was talking about in terms of continuity and timelines and when things are happening i think that where having michael green being directly associated with this was was probably helpful is that this is seated really strongly within both the world of 2019 and 2049, especially as we'll get to, because that's all over this towards the end. Um, and it does so in a way that makes it, 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 it still leaves a lot of breathing room for both of those films and the events. So for example, they're off world during the blackout, right? Which, which on its own, I think is just a really wise narrative choice because we don't want to see too much of that yet, right? We have 
other things coming up that are going to show us that. We know that's going to be something that will be a focus in the future of, of other material. But in this one, this the the blackout is treated as you know an aftershock. We we come back to see the Tyrell building dilapidated. We come back to see Nexus 8s being gunned down. You know, we come back to seeing things desiccated and falling apart. And likewise, the characters, you know, especially Ash, who's sort of our proxy in this thing. She was gone for that too. So she comes back to this world that still smells the same and looks the same to a degree, but something's very, very different about it. And so there's that homecoming aspect to this arc, right? In the first arc, you know, we, we're on the streets with Detective Ashina. You know, we're, we're seeing things through the eyes of a Blade Runner in Los Angeles. And then we have this middle arc that's very different that takes place largely off-world. And then we come back home again. <clears throat> and something that I love that really made me feel like it was a homecoming is the way issue, I believe it's nine, starts, which I just love. It starts with Tyrell, right? And he's filming this segment for something where he's talking about, you know, what would become the Nexus models that we know so well. He's talking about his plans for it as like a sales pitch, right? And then it jumps around in time. It goes back to Ash's childhood. And we get echoes of the film, of the first film. We get basically a Harry, you know, Bryant uh, a line, a Detective Bryant stand-in line. You know, uh, if you're not cops, you're little people. We see that with Nana or Nani, the grandmother character, telling Detective Ashina, like, don't, you do what they say. When they come down and they touch down onto Earth and they want something, you give it to them. You get out of their way, right? Um, and you get the sense of like, that is really what life is like for people on the streets. That's the world that this woman who went on to become a legendary cop figure, that's where she was brought up. And that's, 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 you know, at the core of who she is. And so as she starts to divert from her job, which she's really good at, and we also see early on in this arc, um, it makes sense because there's something in her that's deeper than that Blade Runner, Right. Um, and we see her formative years as she's kind of growing up in this environment and what that does to her. And so we get this different appreciation for who she is and for what this setting is, and also for who we are as Blade Runner fans reading it, coming home again to Los Angeles, and a very different one that we haven't seen before um, in fiction, because 2049, although technically much of it is set there, doesn't feel like an LA film because the Los Angeles in 2049 is so is so incredibly different as we've discussed being someone who when i've been asked what would you like to see a third film do my answer is always i would like to see the rise of tyrell i'm always interested in going back to the tyrell building in a different time period or when you know post his death post 2022 i loved the fost character the uh the engineer that's kind of gone mad yeah or i'm not it's unclear whether he's a replicant or a human but he's kind of like working at the dilapidated Tyrell building as if nothing had happened. And there's bullet holes in the walls, blood everywhere. Um, the scene where he's at the conference table with a bunch of rotting replicants in bags sitting in those chairs. I was like, wow, what a, like what a strong aesthetic choice to make and how well does it work? Because it, you know, it, it makes you ask these detailed questions in your head, kind of like our replicant episodes that we had about, Wait, what do you mean they're rotting? Like, did they did they wake up? Did they die? Did they never wake them up? Why are they in bags? Like all these questions in the background that you have to move on from because the the story moves on and you don't have time to cover that stuff. But I just that that level of world building was really cool. And you know, the computer with the Tyrell owl. Again, I think one of the things that works best about this 
is the difference between what I've seen in other films as fan service when they bring something back. And I'm like, uh, you're just like really trying to go for the nostalgia morphine and just really, you know, pump it into people versus something that is world building and actually works while still hitting you right in the feels in terms of nostalgia. And I think that's the line that this walks really well. And that I could not give uh, enough credit to the writers um, and the artists for it for, because they really did that well. Can I hop in on one point quick on that? That that yeah, that sequence reminds me a lot of something else that's come up in some episode at some point, probably a frame rate. Um, it's, I, I know it primarily as the book, but I do love the film as well. The Road. There's a part in The Road that is anybody who's read it or watched the film will, will remember where they stumble. They open this trap door and they go down into a basement and they're just confronted by this incredible, terrifying, mm. feral presence of these people who are just desperate and cut off from the world and, and losing it. And when, when Ashina is walking around the, this, you know, bombed out Tyrell building, which of course is bombed out because of the blackout. Um, and she's talking about ghosts and she's, and she's poking around and there's just nothing. And she's walking through this thing that we all remember so well from the film as this like incredibly beautiful palace. Right. And now it's just this weird skeletonized ruin and she's walking around and walking around and there's, there's just a tick, tick, tick noise around the corner. And then she turns the corner and she's confronted by these pale, like red eyed, crazy crazy feral wildlife she calls them yeah wildlife yeah and it's it's very it's just frightening because it's that same sense to me that you get in the road which is like a very kind of you know quiet lonely experience and then just this like crazy level of unspeakable horror being perpetrated by other people and it's like it goes it goes up to 20 you know and they're and they're talking about eating her yeah exactly animals yeah which was was certainly reminiscent of the road right (laughs) right and and i remember like specifically as i was thinking about that scene in the in the road and i was thinking like are these people or are they replicants because it's kind of unclear like the as i'm reading it the first time i'm kind of thinking these might be replicants and then they're talking about cannibalism and then i realized that there are replicants still in the tyrell building but they're still in bags right and they're falling apart like you were saying dan and i was like oh my god those are humans like those are desperate humans who are living sort of like the trash mesa people in 2049 in this off the grid way and trying to survive in the margins of society and they've been driven crazy for whatever reason and then at the heart of that is this engineer you're talking about who i also think yeah i as another one of these characters who i totally agree like 100 exists in blade runner for me now just like padrake the, the the sensitive replicant in the previous arc just lives in blade runner for me now this engineer lives there for me now like i, I just think he is fills a void that i just love i think he's a great character towards the end of issue 12 you have all of the um the same replicant, what's her name? Oh, uh, White of Hyde. Yes, yeah. where they're all there. And the sort of Tyrell Stanton character, what's his name? Selwyn. Selwyn, yeah. He, just that scene, it just felt, again, authentic. Um, it was genuinely creepy, and it was believable um, that he's experimenting, and then he has all the versions of the same person. And then there's some dialogue in there, and they're saying, well, were these people or were these a copy? And they're like, both. But you don't really know what they mean by that. So it's, was it the original or was it a replicant of uh, this Blade Runner character? And they're like, well, yeah, it was both. But that doesn't, that wouldn't make any sense. It, but I, I love the ambiguity of it. I, there's a lot of ambiguity in this series, much like there totally. is in Blade Runner. And it really, really works. It, it, um, I I could envision this as a film or whatever, 
in my head. And that's, for me, reading a comic, that's hard to do. Comics are already very difficult for me to kind of, because everything's static. Um, but I was really seeing these people, characters move in my mind. And yeah, it was quite effective. I don't want to jump out of line just because I have a few things I want to cover, you know, by issue. But since Jamie brought up the scene with the four different Hythe replicants uh, standing behind Selwick, I loved, loved the shot where you see all four of them standing behind him and they are each in a different stage mm-hmm. of pulling out their gun from yeah. their jacket. So you see the first one reaching into her jacket, the second one just pulling the gun out, the third one kind of with her arm bent, and then the fourth one aiming it. And that's a cool touch. Yeah, that one. That's a cool touch for a comic because in a different setting um, or with a different story, you could have that same exact shot. Um, and Patrick's probably seen this before since he reads a lot of comics where it's one character, but the character is being framed in four different ways in the same panel because they're showing movement or they're showing a sequence. And I loved, again, Jamie, you mentioned ambiguity and I loved how they blended something that is done in comics. I don't know if often, but I certainly I've seen it before. I've seen that flavor before and they blended it with the ambiguity of Blade Runner because when you look at that panel, you're like, a little bit confused you're like wait a minute is this four separate people or are they just showing it and so that goes right along with the theme of is one of them the original did they clone the original are these all copies and so it was such a beautiful visual representation of that thematic philosophical um ambiguity that the story gives i that that was one of my favorite panels out of this whole uh, i love that panel too and And even the way yeah go ahead patrick go ahead go go no i was just gonna say even the way when I first saw that panel and I'm, I thought less of them like, Oh, well, who cares? It's, I almost thought of them as androids when I saw them seeing that many of the same made me think less of them. Not as like, just as like, Oh, well it's they're robots who gives a shit. Kill them. It's also a first time for Blade Runner. We've never seen that before with live speaking characters to see four identical replicants dress the same. They You cannot differentiate them. That's the first time we've been confronted with that in this universe as mm-hmm. far as I can think. Which is something that came up in our replicants conversation where we were talking about how there must be duplicate replicants out there because people can, you know, they say like, oh, he's a replicant. Like they know, they know, they know it is because, you know, they've grown up seeing the same face a thousand times. So they know who it is. But in the films, we don't see that, right? Right. There's hints of it. There's hints of it. You see the Sapper Morton model floating in the tank in the in the lobby or entryway of the Wallace Corporation Earth headquarters. And then you see um, both in the uh, short prequel as well as in the film, you see the real Sapper Morton. So it gives you a hint that they don't have, you know, two billion different replicant models. There's a certain number of models and then they repeat. Right. Um, But yeah, just... I love the way they're throwing it back in a visual way without exposition, without dialogue, without explaining it to you. They're just doing it, taking full advantage of the medium of comic books, which is unique to this medium, you know, the way they did it. And so I I love something that can exploit its medium to full effect while reconnecting it back to the films and the books and all that stuff. I, I think that's really great. Yeah, I want to stay on this panel for a second because I think that there's a, there's there's also the previous panel which I want to talk about for a moment. So the the we we are first seeing all of these different hides 
with this, right, where they're walking down the hallway behind Selwyn talking about the lion, mm-hmm. Tyrell's lion, right? Which is, of course, it's a full page. It's a vertical panel. And then when we see them all, and it looks almost like they're in a house of mirrors or something. It's kind of unclear what we're looking at. And we're thinking like, God, there's a third Hythe model out there. Like, what is going on? And why are there so many reflections of her? Oh, wait a minute. Are those all like different Hythes, right? And then the next time we see them, you're right. It's this horizontal thing that spans two pages. And you're able to actually appreciate that they're all moving independently. And what I I just want to say for the millionth time, Andres Guinaldo is so freaking good. And one just very technical, simple way to know that is that if you look at the way that all of those different hides are drawn, it is completely clear, even though their faces are at very different angles and, you know, they have different expressions and they're doing different things, that that's the same figure. And an artist, like to be able to have that kind of consistency to understand just like the underlying musculoskeletal structure of the face of your characters that well is really hard to do. And a lot of artists suck at that. And I, I don't really care because like I, I can't do that, right? But Guinaldo, like it's always clear. Like you look at Selwyn on that page and every single panel that's clearly Alexander Selwyn, right? And this whole having one artist doing all of these issues has been a boon for us, I think, because it's given us the chance to kind of watch a movie where we're watching just these characters look a certain way and sound a certain way and be portrayed a certain way. And it's very easy to read. But I do want to go back for a moment to that previous panel uh, where Selwyn comes out again, because I think it gets at a lot of things we were talking about, obviously, in our previous Replicants show, but also a lot of the things that are sort of underlying the characters in this and making them interesting. Because Selwyn, although you're right, he's a kind of a Tyrell stand-in, he's more than that, right? He's a Tyrell usurper, right? He and Kanan Technologies are bringing the ashes of what Tyrell was working on, which, according to Selwyn, was life, you know, being replicated naturally by replicants, which is, of course, tying us back to 2049. He was trying to make that happen. And he was off in this sort of Dr. Moreau, you know, weird villa up on this hillside. Um, And it's very unclear what his motivations are. It's very unclear if he wants um, Cleo to come back because she's his daughter or because, you know, he wants to experiment on her or he wants to sell her. There's a lot of kind of murkiness to his character. But I want to read, if it's okay, that panel that I'm talking about, just to kind of bring it back to people, because this very directly relates to our previous episode, our previous Replicant show. So this is Selwyn coming out, uh, and uh, what happened is is Ash had gone to his villa. She is seeing this lion that she recognizes from one of the first issues. It's so cool, too. It's so cool, yeah. Um, And Selwyn comes out flanked by all of these Hythe Replicant models, and he says... And he's explaining to Ash what this lion is. He says, an experiment in the growth of artificial life from cub to adult. That was his, meaning Tyrell, that was his dream for his replicants. Not simulacrums of a certain age with lifespans cut short. Real beings growing, evolving, changing with every day that dawns. Life itself and whatever is beyond. Welcome back, Detective Ashina. Again, just fucking great writing. And, uh, and it gets at this kind of proto-spiritual thing that all of these characters who create are gradually getting closer to. And we see Wallace as like the, the farthest end of that, where he's basically this – he sees himself as a prophet almost, right? Like it's weird that an engineer would say life itself and whatever is beyond that, right? Like why is he thinking about you know creating – things with an afterlife or like what is the what like what is he like we see he's he's gone from what we see in issue nine which is that replicants were being marketed as basically housekeepers right and soldiers 
to this point where he's creating life forms that can grow and evolve and get hurt and, and think and love and die and be reborn in an afterlife of some kind. Like, it's just, I, I, I love how it feels to me almost like a, like a, like a Kurtz moment, you know, in, um, in, uh, heart of darkness or apocalypse now. Apocalypse right. Now. Right. Yeah. Well, heart of darkness first, um, where he's just sort of at his own, on his own in this, you know, far off place. And he's just left to his own devices and kind of losing it. And, uh, but, but brilliant and very powerful. And he's just a very interesting character who, uh, I'm glad we got to get some quality time with. We have Tyrell, Selwyn, and then Wallace. And so I, I think the answer to the question, why are they thinking about afterlife and why are they getting into these deeper things is because it's very obvious at this point, we've seen three different engineer slash magnate CEOs <clears throat> where obviously this kind of work leads to a God complex. It's very easy to be like, wow, I like I've evolved past normal humans because I am now generating, creating and evolving life. They're creating animals, they're creating humans, they're adjusting their internal workings, giving them memories. And so, yeah, I think the, I think the series is making clear that that's kind of what this leads to. Call it a madness or call it a god complex, but these three characters have a lot in common. What's interesting about Selwyn and his dialogue, he doesn't, he's like life and whatever is beyond that. And talking about actual creation of life where they grow and they learn. So clearly what is, what has been created to that point, he does not see as anything more than an automaton. Um, despite them being flesh and blood, they, they don't qualify. He wants to make them into something more like you and me or like them or whatever. There's a delineation happening where, and this is something we've discussed quite a bit on our shows, um, where they don't, he does not see these replicants as anything other than a construct. Um, and he's pushing them towards, and the irony here is that why not just, well, I guess because you can grow them faster perhaps. Um, but he's pushing them towards something that's already been achieved in humans. We already can have our own children and grow and learn and possibly an afterlife or whatever, you know, like all of those things are, are happening for us. The way they talk about it as if it's never been happened, but in fact, these are humans and it are all of those things he's discussing aren't foreign ideas. They are present in the human experience. It's, but it's not, very, in a, not in a product that you can make a slave though. Yeah. I, I, totally. But the irony here is that they're like, again, more human than human. That's what they're going for. But again, I, as we sit here and read this and discuss it, it's like earth to Selwyn, where we do all those things already, you know? Um, but again, I guess the difference would be, you can then force those people to do whatever you want to eth ethically because they're still not quite human. Um, it's just a strange, it's a strange middle ground. Um, yeah. Everything that makes us amazing as, as creatures, as homo sapiens, homo sapiens, I was going to say everything that makes <laughs> us uh, unique as homo sapiens. It, it's just strange to me. Like he's talking about all of these things that we've already accomplished. My last point is there's this one moment where, you see the child, and um, I think Ashina Ash, she says, 
she looks at him and he was like, no, that would be a miracle sort of hinting to the birth replicants having their own children, you know, which was of course a, a, a wink and a nod to um, Sapper. And there's a couple of Sapper. There's the several. Whole, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the tree, there's the whole kind of dilapidated yeah, that tree. House. I'm glad you the, saw that. Yeah. The guy that's dressed in that, that long, like, um, uh, Poncho kind of reminded me of Sapper, even though he was clearly Af- African-American or black or whatever. Also reminded me a little bit of Deckard, but there was some Sapper stuff going on there, um, which I thought was a, a nice touch. I want to go back and pull on that string that Jamie started to unravel for a second there um, when he was saying about Selwyn being interested in creating something that was born as a cub and evolved into an adult, etc. What I'm curious about is not so much like why is he interested in that while we already do that with humans and animals you know in real life because it's like again right but those aren't property you can't own them as slaves you can't send them off world etc but i think more importantly as a capitalistic head of industry i don't want to say unscrupulous but certainly where making money and being successful is the probably the most important thing to sell when aside from the philosophical ramifications of what he's doing what is he seeing as an advantage in taking away what we know of as replicants being fully born and created as an adult with four-year lifespan, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to letting it grow from a child from scratch, more like a human? What does he see there that has an advantage over what we've seen as the traditional Nexus 6, Nexus 7, Nexus 8 approach. That, I think, is the real question, which is not explained. But there's got to be something else going on there that he's thinking about. That's what that's what you made me think about when you were describing it. Well, the um, conundrum here is, I, I would say the conundrum for the world that they're setting up and the world of 2049 or whatever is, okay, you're going to try and make these things more like humans. Then eventually... Won't there, there's a replicant revolution happening. We're introduced to people who are like, they're going to demand their rights, like so many groups before them throughout world slash American history. Like to me, like the the further they march towards these things being self-sustaining and self-replicating, excuse the pun, the more problems they're going to have with not giving them rights. And eventually having government say, okay, they can replicate themselves. We're, we are freeing them. You cannot make them anymore. You're done. Like that's, but at the same time, it's history repeating itself again. Um, yeah. I, I think so. they're falling into the same pitfalls that a lot of people have fallen into, whether you're talking about, you know, eugenics or other things. I, th- I think people have this idea that they can create. The thing is that they're not looking to create products. They're looking to create civilizations, right? They're not looking to control appliances. They're looking to control societies, right? They, they, they want to have, they want to create worlds, um, which of course, it's not like we've never seen, you know, anybody who's seen, uh, you know, Dr. Faustus knows this is, is not going to go well. Anybody who's read, you know, the, the myth of, uh, of flying too close to the sun knows this is not going to turn out too well. I feel like, um, it's 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 common, you know, to have brilliant scientists act act hubristically, right? Which is what Oppenheimer was afraid of, right? With the atomic bomb, he was like, "Oh, this was I should, we shouldn't have done this. This is we we have now brought about our own our own doom." 
Um, a lot of people don't get to that point. A lot of people go past that point and they end up being their own worst enemies. And I think in this case, clearly he gets his comeuppance because he's murdered shortly after we see him again. But the way that he's murdered also, I think, is 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 clearly uh, – so another instance where I think what Dan was saying before applies – and I don't want to move on necessarily from that conversation. I just want to bring this up while I'm thinking of it, um, which is that there is a very clear reference to Blade Runner 20 – to the film. Um, and yet it goes in a different direction and it feels like a reference that's there for us as fans to notice and to and to appreciate, but that's not like slamming us on the head, right? So this I recreated on the head to me. I didn't like it. Oh yeah? No, not at all. Yeah. We've seen it before, twice now. We ha- we have, but I I didn't end with his eyes getting gouged out. You know, I I, I to, to me it it felt it felt tasteful, I think. Again, it's just something that we've seen before. It's a trope. Um just like it, you, you you do something enough just this is just my perspective um and there were several points in the comic where i'm like oh look they're at a noodle bar like oh like i just was like we've seen this before like i love the world it's all working well for me don't repeat these things that we've seen before we don't need you to do that we know we're, we're in of the blade running universe and it just and i don't think that they were trying to it's kids in a sandbox is what it is you know oh it's kind of neat and for whatever reason certain writers whether it's film or books or tv or whatever they fall into this trap sometimes where they feel like they need to repeat what we've seen before and i don't think it was this horrible awful thing i just was like all right the lion was a stand-in for the owl in some ways like there's these repeats that are a little tweaked a little bit but there's things that we've seen before and honestly by the end of the series or the end of these this issue or whatever i really would like to go somewhere different I would like to go somewhere that's not re not recreating the world of 2019. I, I I think they did a great job. I think it's effective. It's successful. It's engrossing. Amazing ideas. I'm just kind of bored of that aesthetic, though. Like that's not what Blade Runner is to me. What Blade Runner is are the conversations that Selwyn's having. Are the conversations that um that are sort of happening in the middle of these. Uh, moments that to me is what Blade Runner is and I'm not saying that the writers or the Titan or whoever or Alcon are saying this is what Blade Runner is I just I just felt like there are several moments in these comics where they're repeating what we've seen before and I think it's it just doesn't work for me that's all not the end of the world Um, but I'm just bored by it and I'm I was Mm. longing for the world of 2049 I was longing for a world that's where we've progressed well we haven't progressed where that world has sort of progressed or regressed i guess i just i feel like there's this love affair with uh, and i get it with 2019 i get it everybody loves it i love it it's one of my top films of all time i do but they're just over and over recreating that world and that's the world we're staying in even black lotus is in that same world like come on guys like let's go somewhere different and it's not to say that the the story points aren't going somewhere different because they are and we're being introduced into different facets of uh tyrell or selwyn or and like you were saying patrick and you were saying dan i think they feel authentically blade runner they feel like they could exist in the movie world too like no doubts about it um i would just like to see it i want to see a. I mean i know this is post blackout but i feel like these creators are a slave to the world of 2019 and i'm over it all right i'm not (laughs) that's fine (laughs) well i my disagreement wouldn't be that i'm i don't want to go somewhere new my disagreement would be that 
they did go somewhere new and like they did go off world. They did show us other things. And this is only one, one of three or more series they're going to do. So personally, I'm going to reserve judgment on that. If they were to stay in LA 2019, mostly for all of 2029 and all of origins, then I would agree. Then I would be like, okay, this is tired. Well, origins is LA too. I mean, origins is this, I mean, we're back in the same, I mean, obviously. And again, I think that there's, the language needs to be clear, at least for me. I think thematically we are going to new places. Absolutely. I'm just sort of tired of seeing the same, oh, look, rain. Oh, look, a street. Oh, look, people on the bicycles. It's like, it's just a recreation of the same thing that we've seen again and again. And I would like a little bit of less less noise in these panels. And the best panels to me have been, the, like, even... Um, I, th- I don't know if it was the last one, but you see the Hades landscape again, the same way we saw it in the opening. It's like, we, I get this. I get it. Like, we don't need to see, oh, look, they're going to the Tyrell building. It's the same opening as Blade Runner. Again, and I think it's just, I feel like because we have had 2049 and we've really moved into a new aesthetic with Blade Runner and with a story that's really powerful, that's where I want to go. I want to see more right. of that. But this isn't set in 2049. The chronology is different. I know. I mean, the the title is literally 2019. (laughs) I know. Oh, I know. I know that. And I think I just was like, okay, like I'm ready for a series set post 29, 2049. That'd be very cool. Yeah. I would agree with that. I'm just not going to fault this series for not being that. I don't fault them. I think I just, within that context, I just have a problem with how much they recreate things that we've seen before. And I don't Mm. think it's, I don't think it's problematic to like, I'm not saying, Oh my God, this is weighing the comic down. I think just for me, I I, I flip through the pages or scroll through the pages or whatever. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Oh, we're in blade runner. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Oh, look, noodle bar. Oh, look, you know, it's just that kind of thing. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I'd like to point out it's actually not a noodle bar. Jamie is an Indian restaurant. <laughs> so they're serving biryani in cups. I picked up on that because I would have really enjoyed having some when I was reading that panel. I mean, I mean, it's set there. I mean, the, 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 as we know from David Leach, who's coming right back on the show, actually, listeners, um, the, the whole idea for this came out of like what else is happening in the windows behind this, behind the, you know, Harrison Ford in the original movie. So, so this, this particular comic is very much set squarely in that world as a side narrative that shows that. other things that are happening. And so, so to me, like it's all scene setting and I have to say for some of the weaker parts for me have been when they've actually diverted from that to a degree. Like for example, when I see Selwyn sitting outside with a sunny landscape, you know, behind him. I get mm-hmm. kind of distracted by that because I'm like, oh, it feels like that doesn't jive with like, why are there not other people there? Like why I start thinking, I start overthinking, you know, like, where is he? How far away is he outside of the city? Like, how did he build this house out there? Like, why is there no infrastructure around him? How's he getting power? I start kind of like going off on that direction. And when I go off world also, I'm kind of looking at the panel. I'm like, oh, I didn't really, didn't really picture it quite like that. Like, I, I hope we don't see too much more of it because it's going to kind of screw up my perception. And then they don't show any more, which is good, I think. Um, so I, I found that when it uh, went away from 2019, I was more kind of Blade Runner cranky fan getting like, oh, I, 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 I don't think, which is stupid and it's something that I'm going to have to get over. 
Um, and I did like those segments of it, but I was distracted a little bit because to me, the scenes where Ashina is walking around, you know, a rainy Los Angeles just felt to me like just another story set in this particular world that I really love. Um, and not necessarily like fan service. I do think though that, um, you know, the death scene that I was talking about, I, I can see how that's, I mean, it was, it was pretty unmistakable what they were referencing, right? I just think that there were kind of thematic reasons behind it that I found kind of interesting because up to that point, I hadn't conflated Tyrell and Selwyn very much because they were talked about separately quite a bit. Um, and then as you know, when he, he shows up and he has those big glasses on, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, this is kind of weird. Right. And then of course, as, as his, you know, reanimated wife's thumbs start creeping up his face, it's, it's immediately pulls you back to that scene in 2019, but in a different context, because in 2019, Batty is doing that as an act of, you know, of, 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 of anger, right. As an act of like, like, how dare you do this to me? How dare you give me a time bomb? Right. Whereas in this one, it's an act of, of memory, which I think is really interesting. It's, it's inspired by this horrible implanted memory that this newly created Isabel has of this life that she was leading. Right. I mean, and I think that gets at what Dan was saying earlier, we all, all were saying it, which is that, um, like, why did they go to this God complex place? Like, what, 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 what brings them to that? Why do they want to create babies who will grow up, grow up to rebel? And I think it's because they're trying to basically put their middle finger up to this, you know, whatever God figure they believe in, if there is one for them, and say, like, fuck you, you let our world fall apart. You weren't here for us when the food systems fell away. You weren't here for us when the sky started raining. You weren't here for us when we started shooting each other in the street and, and fleeing from this earth. So we are the gods now. This is our kingdom. You've, you, you've left. You've abdicated. You are out there off world. We are the gods of this world. And as gods, we are not subject to death, right? And so because of that, when his wife dies, he just creates a new one. And because of his hubris, he gives the new one the memories of the old one, who, of course, was running from Selwyn, right? So he gives this new this new resurrected Isabel the memories of his dead wife. And as those memories start resurfacing when she sees him and she starts pulling these things up from her implanted database, she, she realizes she must kill this person. And I love that as an act of revenge and as an act of, of, of vengeance and also as an act of fulfillment of a circle from the earlier issues, right? That this new Isabel travels home and she kills him and she snaps his neck. I, I, I find it and she said, remember what she says? She says, you loved me too much, right? And I, I, I find that very, very powerful. And it felt very different for me. So like, although visually, clearly it's a, it's a callback to the baddie Tyrell scene. Um, the themes behind it feel different enough to me that I'm not distracted by visual similarities. They kind of fill it out for me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think those are all good points and it's well taken. It'll be interesting to see how they deal with nostalgia and throwbacks and sort of skirting that line between getting tropey and not when we go at go to different time periods 2029 etc i wanted to make sure that we covered a couple of the lines uh which you guys have mentioned or patrick has mentioned some but i i just had a couple that i wrote down in quotations here from from the various uh issues because they were so great i thought um when ash is referencing her glasses in uh in the ninth um what the hell are these episodes issues in issue, the ninth yep. issue and she says uh, turns out vision can go south quickly off world little things they don't mention in the promo which of course to <laughs> us conjures these images of the blimp and the advertisement and stuff and which has always been super positive you know come to you know go off world and start a new life etc um i think in a, in issue 10 she says 
in what do you call that, Patrick? When it's the thoughts, so they're the the rectangular boxes. Yeah, so captions. Oh, those are captions. Yeah, which um, actually you you will know from the collected edition because it shows you how they write those, right? So so they'll if you look at it, you know, for example, on this page that I'm holding up, it'll say Ash caption, and then it'll have the text in there, and then it'll have dialogue separate from that. So that's how when they're scripting the comic, they can specify what it looks like on the page. Cool. Yeah, I love how it works. Meaning that you immediately, even for me, like I don't read that many comics. It's very obvious that it's her thoughts that I'm yeah. reading. Mm-hmm. And she says, um, sifting through the ashes of the world I left behind. Um, I really love that line. Then there's the chase scene where she's being chased. She, well, she's confronted by a police spinner and then breaks off and gets chased. And she kind of dips in between the buildings sort of dangerously because she can't see very well without her glasses. And she says, worse ways to go. Not a lot. <laughs> and I was like, man, that is some great film noir writing right there. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think we talked about replicants and how they see themselves in society. And I, I thought that there's a scene where they mentioned we as replicants, but they're talking about being, you know, the lowest class and being poor and scrounging and having menial jobs. I thought that was a great reference to things that we've seen. There's a character that talks about being a combat medic. And uh, I love every time they used a new name for something with, again, the exception of Calantha versus Calanthia, which we don't have an answer yet to why they're choosing to use a different word. But um, talking about her being built by Tyrell for the Alcazar group on Xinyang, which I'm like, who is that a place in China on Earth? Or is that a Chinese colony off world or, or just something that takes inspiration? We don't know. Uh, the Sirium belt, the Vidar tech over. There were also mechs on one of those off-world scenes where she's referencing a battle. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap. They just like brought some mech bots into this again, without really referencing anything else or being tropey about it. But, and, and I love how they're just in the background. It kind of reminds me of the, um, the waste disposal ships that you see in 2049, where they're not like focusing on it. It's just kind of something that's going on in the background. It's just part of the world building. Um, Hyde's opening line when she comes back and she says, good seeing you again for the first time. Yeah, that was good. I love love those lines that blend time in the way that could only happen with a clone or a replicant in that way. Um, Yeah, we haven't talked about seeing Fraser. I was just about to bring that up. Young replicant with both eyes. Yeah, what do you guys think about that? I was like, oh shit, that's crazy. That was good. That was a great, great moment for the character for sure. Did you like that? did I like it? Yeah, that that phrase yeah, was worked. in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did. I, actually, I, I thought it was cool. Go ahead. Yeah, I thought it was nice to fill in Fraser's background a little bit because she's not the most beloved character in twenty forty nine, and even I'm kind of like just sort of indifferent about her. I'm like, yeah, the actress is good, but her character just doesn't. I don't know. It's just not that fleshed out, and definitely not my favorite character of twenty forty nine. So it was kind of nice to see some of her background story. And I imagine she'll pop up again in further series. Um, what the hell is a bolt hole? Did oh, you guys figure that out? Yeah, I guess I it's just know. slang. They're I was going to say, it sounded slang. like an insult to me. Like yeah. some bolt What's, for, but, like, it's not, but it was a place like a shithole, I guess, but calling it a bolt hole, like it's maybe some cyberpunk or, you know, mechanical place. I don't know. I thought that was cool. I, it um, sounded like butthole in my head, and I laughed when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. I loved the line about, they're talking about making Nexus 8s and saying how the, the ones they're making now are different and the light is gone. And they don't even yeah. say in their eyes or mm-hmm. anything like that. But of course, 
the imagery that it conjures is of the um the eye reflection that rep that glow the replicant glow that that they get in their eyes um there's another line during the selwyn mansion scene and i forget which character this is but oh uh, as she's approaching the mansion she's saying that it looked like it was preserved in amber like nothing mm. had changed since five years ago uh, since she was there or seven years or whatever and she says somebody's gone through the trouble which remind i can't remember specifically but it reminds me of the farm scene with sapper and one of the lines that sapper said um to Kay when he's like putting his glasses on in that scene and yeah i just all of that was really cool. Um, it also reminded me a little bit of Kay approaching the casino in 2049 and realizing that somebody must be living there <clears throat> by the condition of it. Totally. Um, yeah, if, if I, this is totally like petty and small, but if I had like one complaint about this story arc, it was the fact that Ash decided to, like if you look at the panels, when you have the four hides and Selwyn and then Ash confronting them and that they all have their guns drawn, they're like at most 10 feet away from each other. And Ash decided to open fire on one of them. And I was like, she's dead. Like in, in a real life situation, there's no way she would have survived that. And then you see the next panel, she's running off and there's like rounds hitting everywhere. And I wrote down and said, I guess hide replicants are about as good a shot as stormtroopers. <laughs> like right there and nobody can hit her. I'm like, she also is getting a attacked bit. by a lion during that. So <laughs> also that yes. and her spinal, that was, that her spinal a... implant is malfunctioning. She's pretty fucking capable, I guess, right. you know. And lucky, I would say. Yeah. Very lucky. Unless that spinal implant uh, has a magnetic repulsor for uh, for rounds. Uh, <laughs> it could <laughs> or, be mech technology, Dan. You know, we don't know. True. And then at, at the very end, we see, um, we don't see a sex scene, but we see Ash and Fraser in bed together, which I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting and cool. And, and I love how they like didn't make that a thing. Again, it was just sort of like a background element of these two people quote unquote for this series or this world that we're just sharing some warmth and sharing some time together. And like, who knows what kind of relationship they have or what, is that something that will carry on in another series? Or do they but even I, have sexuality? Is that even a yeah. thing? Are they just, they have, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was a cool touch. And again, the fact that they didn't dwell on it or make any kind of thing out of it, it was just like one panel. I thought that was really cool, but yeah. Um, for I'll, I'll close for my thoughts. Um, I haven't, of course, looked into any trailers or looked into any of the imagery from 2029 or Origins, but I'm really curious. Uh, is, is it mostly the same people, Patrick, in terms of writers? And- uh, it is the same people, but it's Mike Johnson now exclusively, and, and Michael Green has become one of a few creative consultants on it. But it's, okay. Mike, it's Mike Johnson's writing now. Well, I found Mike Johnson's writing to be really strong in this, both yeah. the dialogue and just kind of the setup and, and the storyboarding or whatever they did. Um, so I'm really excited to see more from him. I, I hope we can get him on the show and interview him because I, I really liked, again, this difficult task that they took on of walking this line between um, you know, being tropey and making too much of a callback and nostalgia setting something in LA in 2019 or starting in 2019 and then moving forward. Um, but yeah, hats off to them. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm really looking forward to reading it again and finding little details that I hadn't noticed in the background. And I'm really looking forward to the other series that they do. Yeah. And, uh, and Blade Runner origins is out now as well. That actually premiered 
also on my birthday. I don't know if this is just, you know, this might be an accident. <laughs> I can't really tell. But that the first issue just came out on the 10th and the third issue of 2029 came out on the 10th. And we are like awash in Blade Runner comics content, which is pretty crazy. What year is Origin set in? Uh, I don't remember offhand. Let me see if I have that. Um, let's see. Prior to 2007. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So it's the oldest... Um, Blade Runner world minus the original date of do androids, the book, which was 1997, I want to say. Yeah. In the late 90s. But, but we do have glimpses of turn of the millennium in Blade Runner 2019 as well, right? In issue nine, we see 2003 or something, right? When Tyrell's talking. Let me look that up so I don't do fake news here. <laughs> what does it say? Wrong. 2000. Yeah, Los Angeles, okay. two thousand. That's when there's the um, the biryani sequence. Yeah, I I, I guess in closing, I'll, I'll just say that uh, I feel just really lucky that we have this. I, I you know for a long time the only Blade Runner comic we had was that Marvel you know one off, which I also love, but that you know was from like nineteen eighty five, and there hasn't been anything else since then. There's been you know the the novels that everybody has kind of discounted the you know the sequel novels, um, and there's been the computer game, and there's been twenty forty nine. And that's kind of been it. And and now, you know, within the last three years, not only do we have a sequel film, but we have just tons more story content. And it's story content that feels really smart to me, you know? I will say, I wasn't sure if I felt that the Freza and uh, Ash getting together felt contrived to me because I kind of, I saw that coming and I was kind of, when I was seeing it coming, I was like, oh, this feels kind of forced. Uh, and then as I turned the last page and, and they had gotten, you know, together for in whatever way they did, um, it didn't feel forced to me, but it felt like something where it, I don't know, as we mentioned on the Mando episodes, I have an issue sometimes with this small universe thing that people get boxed into where everything has to like fit and everybody has to be, you know, in everybody's story and having Luke come, uh, at the end of something, I'm not going to say what, in case people haven't seen it yet, um, you know, that he wasn't otherwise featured and felt a little bit forced to me. So I, I kind of felt like having Fraser in this, uh, very directly ties it to the to the continuity of 2049. It's like a little bit of a rail switch. You know how like when a train has to go to one direction, they'll switch the rails. As soon as Fraser is in here, it's like, okay, this is a 2049 trajectory now we're on. That being said, I think this is where Mike Green, Michael Green comes in to be very important because I, it, you know, as I've said about 2049 before, I similarly to what Dan was saying before, kind of Fraser for me has always felt a little bit of a character I'm not really super invested in. The uprising was always something I felt was interesting, but didn't feel fleshed out at all. It felt kind of a little bit like it was sort of tacked on to the final third of the movie just to make it more urgent. Um, and for me, that's always been like the only narrative thing I wasn't crazy about. And I think now knowing that Michael Green was writing it along with Hampton Fancher, that that was the that was intentional, I think, because that is where a lot of this expanded universe content is going to be coming into play, and where I'm assuming Black Lotus will show us a lot more, and I'm assuming all of these comics will show us this uprising, uh, and maybe future films will too. Who knows? But I think it's I think it's great, and I think the people who are running this are true fans, and I think that uh, I'm glad that we have this shit to keep unpacking together. Yeah, I think um, to echo both of you, you know, I think. The stories are really smart. The characters are are believable um, within the world that they're building in the comics and within the world that we're familiar with in Blade Runner. It's very easy, and it's been done many times, where you have 
stories that are extensions of a larger world or a movie world and they're in the comics or they're in books and you're like yeah whatever you know it just doesn't it's not believable it's written by people who aren't as inve- who aren't invested who don't really get it um one like the dark crystal is one of the like i don't know if it was it was boom comics they released these series the power of-, of the dark crystal well that was not that one, but that's that story sucks too. But that story yeah. was actually written <laughs> no by the original suck. screenwriters, um, really? which was a, essentially a retelling of the original film. I've seen and read stories where, like, this isn't, they don't even, it's not even, it looks similar, but it's that's not what these stories are about. And we know what those, what those conversations right. they got are. one out of five elements, yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, Blade Runner isn't just about the aesthetics, and the people creating these comics know that. Um, and the the story reflects the complexity of this world, and um, it, it's interest. It will be interesting to see what they continue with uh, in the coming months and years. Uh, I will say, uh, in light of us releasing Gethsemane, what is it? Almost two years ago, um, maybe three years ago. I don't know. No, um, <laughs> no, is it two years. Two oh, years. It's, it'll be two years in July. Yeah, right. Did we release it in twenty eighteen? 2019 no we did not release it in 2019 we released it in 2018 it's serious yeah i'm positive wow anyways um when they had the the scene where the the replicants are talking about living amongst humans sort of quietly it reminded me of kind of the world that we created a little bit where you had these replicants living in society Mm -hmm. sort of trying Mm -hmm. to fit in and not make a big deal and not make a scene. And I was like, Oh, look, there's a little bit of continuity. We were onto something. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. With that said, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we will be back for another episode. Uh, we don't know what that is yet, but we will be back. Uh, in the meantime, for those of you listening um, and have listened to us uh, since we've been around, we have a, a program called Patreon where you can get involved and support us every month starting at $4 and your $4 uh, contribution gives you frame rate, our film discussion show and uh, shit show, which is part of our perfect organism show, which has some great content as well. All of your money goes back into the show for our hosting fees, um, projects that we have planned, possible future live events. We have a great team of people or a great group of people who are already supporting us right now via Patreon, and I'll hand that to Patrick to talk about You that. ready for this? We have not done this in a while, and I am pleased to uh, report that this is going to take a while because there's a shitload of new names, and you people are awesome for supporting us. So without further ado, thank you to Alexander Gates, Andy Geek Girl, Ben Fletcher, Brooke Nestor, Burke Burnett, Carla Rosa, Chase Cupo, Chris Murphy, Christopher Egan, CL11B, Craig Wright, Dan Ferlito, Daniel Purpletree, Darren Gold, Dave Joyce, Dave Turner, David Benson, David Holmes, Dom, Douglas McNaught, Dwight Polson, Erica Ferlito, Fred in the Butts, Gene McNaught, that's the actual name, Gene McDonald, Graeme Zirk, Jackie Childers, Jason, <laughs> Jason Struess, Joe Miller, Joel Thomas Ramos, John Ransom, John Jan Herbertson, Jonas Holmston, Jordan Mason, Julian Casey, Carl McLean, Ken S., Kevin Palm, Tidy, Mark Lemke, Matt Bro, Matt Lowe, Miguel, Mike Dennis, Murray Kucharawi, Nathan Gribble, Nigel Carroll, Nuccio Ferlito, 
Paul J. Goodfellow, Paul Middleton, Petty Chicos, Peter from the Midwest, Priscilla, Rachel Cordy, Reno D, Richard Blackwell, Richie Ammons, Ricky Howell, Ryan Zaid, Sethicus 0480, Stephen Bischoff, Steve Appleman, Stuart Fowether, Thomas Cruzatz, Thurian Lack, Tim Hazeldean, Tim Lawson, Tom Christie, Wesley, and Xander House. You are all wonderful. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you, guys. And we'll talk to you next time. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.